Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. It's another episode of the Ask Noah Show. Kicks off this hour. Straight to the phones. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. You're on Ask Noah. What's on your mind? Uh, hey, Noah. This is uh, Fish from uh, Mississippi. Uh, I was calling with a, a question about the uh, uh, Inkscape snap. Uh, I'm having an, uh, a problem with trying to access uh, or open files uh, that are on, located on removable media. Oh, okay, sure. So, browsing to that uh, that file structure, right? Uh, and actually, if if I have a um, a file that's in uh, or located in a removable media, and I just double click on it to open it, it uh, I'll get a permission denied message. But if I don't use the snap, it, it I can see it just fine. Okay, yeah. So you know what? I uh, I vaguely do remember this. Um... And if I want to, if I remember right, it was actually, there was an upstream issue. Uh, and so there is, there is an open bug on it. And I believe they are working on that particular issue. If I, I don't remember the specifics as to why that happens, um, but you're right. It is a snap specific issue. Um, and it has to do with browsing to another partition. Okay. So I, you know, I, the uh, the short answer to your question is, uh, if you're gonna, if you need to use removable storage, I guess don't use Inkscape at a snap. It it, it currently they don't have it working properly. Um, but like I say, I I'm 99% sure that there is a bug report. And if memory serves, it was uh, it was a friend of mine, uh, Mr. Alan Pope, that uh, that responded and said, hey, you know what? That's that's an upstream issue, and so but it will get resolved. Oh, okay, cool. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate the call. I'm sorry I couldn't be of more help. Again, one eight fifty five four fifty. No, it's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard. Become out of the part of the program. Like, Man, I can't speak tonight. You're on Ask Noah. What's on your mind? Hey, Noah. It's Chaz. How's it going? Hey, Chaz. Welcome back to the program. Yeah, good to be here. Um, so I caught the distro hopping bug again, and I landed on Ubuntu Mate, which I'm probably going to be sticking with for a while. Um, now, as anyone who listens to Jupiter Broadcasting or similar independent uh, properties knows, <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge, uh, the Lenovo is now pushing firmware updates via GNOME software in the same manner that Dell does. And I was wondering, does that extend to other software uh, update methods like, well, software updater or Synaptic or anything like that? Because one of the appeals for Mate for me is, I have to install very, very little to have a complete desktop of programs that I use on a regular basis. So I'm just wondering if I need to add GNOME software to that list. Man, I don't. That's a that's a great question. Um, do you have to add GNOME software? I'm gonna. I, I'd say no. Um, I, the thing is, I don't. You know, if you think about what the Linux landscape is doing, Chaz, if you look at it, I mean, really, the whole idea of software centers 
and all of that is is going to go by the wayside in favor of um, containerized package applications like Snaps. Uh, probably is going to be Snaps. I mean, I'm not trying to get brand specific, but if I had to guess, that's what I would guess. I think that's going to be uh, that's going to be the future. I'm I, I would go ahead and say no. It's, but you know, here's that's the other. What I thought I just didn't know if I just didn't know if there was something along the lines of you know, Lenovo only developed a developer for uh, hired a developer for GNOME software or something specific like that. No, no, no. The I mean, you might get you might get into the the GTK um, the uh, GTK the GIMP GIMP toolkit GTK. I really can't talk tonight. Uh, you might get into the, some of that where there are some dependencies, but they'll just pull them down. I'll give you an example. I am a huge fan of Gedit. I don't know why. I just like it. And uh, obviously, it is decidedly a gnome app, and I am decidedly on KDE. And uh, I, I still install it, and it just pulls down whatever dependencies it needs. And I'm sure there's somebody out there that's like, I can't believe he pulls down all of the gnome dependencies just for just for his uh, for a text editor. But what can I say? I like it. Hey, and that's what Linux is all about. You put what you like on the system instead of what Microsoft or Apple tells you you have to have. Exactly. That's exactly the way I look at it, too. Hey, thanks for the call again, Chaz. I appreciate it. No problem. Hey, um, uh, real quick before you mm-hmm. buzz me off, what time is uh, the Schmidt Show uh, recorded at? Because I really liked what you guys said yesterday. Want to call in next week even though it's kind of backwards, but I can always listen live. So just what time is that again? Yeah, so he is live, our buddy Brad Schmidt, he's live every Monday at 10 a.m. Central. That would be 8 a.m. Pacific, or I believe it's 11 a.m. your time, uh, Eastern. Awesome, great. Can't wait uh, for next week, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'll, I'll tell Steve you said hello. Hey, it's Brad. <laughs> a little inside baseball there. 1-855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. So uh, for those of you that had no idea what we were just talking about, uh, friend uh, friend of the show, friend of mine, personal friend of mine, uh, Mr. Brad Schmidt, does a, a podcast every uh, Monday at 10 in the morning. And it it's it's if I answer questions about technology, Brad answers questions about life. Dude is just a superb individual guy. Uh, he used to be a former pastor. He uh, is a former truck driver. Well, he's still a truck driver, actually. Um, he's he's had like 27 different jobs. He has more jobs than anybody I've ever met in my life. And uh, it's given him a lot of life is what it's given him. And so he uh, he hosts a show where he, he talks about life. In the past couple episodes, he said, hey, do you want to join me? And so uh, I've been joining him. We've talked about, talked about all sorts of things. If you're into like the prepper survivalist kind of stuff, uh, if, if that's at all for you, uh, that's an episode that's going to be coming up. We're going to do an episode called everyday carry and, uh, what items do you absolutely have to have when you leave the house? And so, uh, like I said, it, it might appeal to the prepper survivalists among you totally unrelated to technology, but uh, since it came up on the air, I figured I'd give them a, give them a plug. So that's Mondays at 10 AM central. If anybody's interested, the Schmidt uh, but this is not the Schmidt Show. This is the Ask Noah Show, show and uh, we have an exciting show lined up. Coming up later in the program, Brandon Johnson, formerly of Red Hat. I don't actually know what the new company that he works for. He's probably just going to be Brandon, formerly of Red Hat forever. Uh, he's going to be joining us in the program to talk about his home automation system. He uh, recently embarked on a home automation project, and uh, he's thinking he's going to have it done by the end of December. It says it's mostly cloud independent and it's not 100% open source or open protocol, but 
uh, all or I'm sorry, it's not 100% open protocol, but all of the software is running open source and running on top of, you guessed it, Fedora. So he's going to join us and break that down, exactly what it is that he has done and what he's doing. Speaking of our friends at Red Hat, uh, as I said last week, we are going to be doing a uh, some more tutorial videos, and that is a area of content I would like to do more of, and uh, so we're going to do it. I, as promised, finished my WireGuard tutorial, and that is available online. We'll have a link for you here in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com, but you can also search on YouTube uh, how to set up WireGuard, and uh, we put together a tutorial. I have been living in WireGuard all week, playing with it. It's been absolutely fantastic. Wound up with a couple production instances that I didn't really intend to have, but after playing with it for a week, while all of that stuff is fresh in my mind, that's the time to put stuff into production because you're prepared for problems. The issue is I'll experiment with a piece of technology for the show and then I'll, I always document what I do, but after I'm done experimenting with the show, it just kind of goes to the back of my mind. And I have the memory of a goldfish. Any of you that know me know that. And so I have a difficult time remembering how it was I got something to work or how I, how it was I arrived at a, at a given solution. And so what I find is six, seven, eight months down the road, I find a time when I need to put something into production and I say, okay, well, now that software has had a little bit of a chance to bake. And if there are any problems, I'm sure they would have cropped up. And then I go to do it and I have to reteach myself the entire process all over again. And so there are two things that I'm going to do to combat that. One is, uh, as I, as I'm filming tutorials or creating content for the show, I just go ahead and put it into production because I figure, why not? It's already fresh in my mind. I already know how to solve all the problems. I'll just get it into production. And yes, there is a risk that it may break, but there's a risk that it may break down the road. And in my testing of WireGuard, it has been 100% flawless. And I put it through all sorts of rigmaroles to try to see if I could break it. Haven't been able to do so. Wound up with a couple of informal production uh, environments, which allowed me to test it in the real world. So I can come back here and tell you that if you're willing to live on the bleeding edge, it is kind of sort of ready for production. There aren't any problems with it anyway. We just, it doesn't have a track record yet. And typically I do like to see software with a proven track history of not breaking stuff, working with other software and being reliable in the field. And so far we have my, eso my uh, esoteric use cases of all of a week. And so if you're comfortable with that, then I tell you to go ahead and put it into production. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. But the second thing that we are going to start doing is basically every piece of technology that I have to set up for a client that is, if it, if it runs on Linux, if it is open source and it is useful to you, the listener, then we're going to put out a tutorial. And so uh, following the WireGuard tutorial, we are going and for 2019, redoing a bunch of the automation stuff at the radio station. Obviously, we're working with Fred Gleason over at Paraval Systems, and he is giving us some ideas and some tips and some tricks and showing us how to really harness all of the energy out of the Rivendell radio automation system. Uh, Fred came on the program and described to you exactly what that software is. Now we're digging into the finer details of it. We have that piece of software doing so many crazy things. It, is, it could be a home automation program all on its own. So we're going to put together some tutorials on getting that set up. So if you want to create content or if you just want to use it to automate stuff, um, it actually is not a bad way to do that. If you want to be able to do that in a graphical environment, Rivendell gets you there. So uh, we're going to have some tutorials there. But the most, the most exciting tutorial that we are going to do is every so often, I'd say once every couple of episodes, I get a, uh, a phone call, I get an email, I get a telegram, somebody says, 
No, what certifications do you recommend? And I've given the same answer since day one of this program. I don't care about Cisco, the Cisco uh, CCENT, any of that. I don't really care about the Microsoft certifications. The only certification that I look for as an employer is the Red Hat one. So the only ones that mean anything to me. And that's not that's not a I'm a Linux snob thing. It's just the the Cisco certifications are a lot of taking a piece of transparency and seeing how much marker you can write on the transparency and how much marker you can erase with just a Kleenex and, and your saliva and uh, and subnetting. And you do a lot of subnetting for the Cisco CCENT. But it doesn't really tell me a whole lot of real-world skills. You're testing on a virtualized environment, and it's not even the full virtualized environment. It's like some Java knockoff of part of a Cisco router. So I don't, as, a, as an employer, I don't put a lot of stock in that test. Somebody does really poorly, well, it could just be because they were expecting other commands to be inside of the simulator that weren't there. If somebody does amazing on the test, it's because they're just really good at subnetting. It's just, it's very difficult for me to say, yeah, somebody who passed that test really fully understands and grasps networking. That's not true with the Cisco, uh, the um, Red Hat RHCSA. The Red Hat tests are real world tests. They give you an actual Red Hat server. You sit down and you perform a given set of tasks on that real server. All of the stuff that would be available to you on a real server are available on the server that you test on. It must survive a reboot. And so the certification really, really carries some weight. And it's not that expensive. It's about 300 bucks to get certified. Now, Red Hat is not a sponsor of this program. They don't give me any money to say any of this. We have no formal relationship. So there's, it's, I'm not trying to imply or, or anything like that, that Red Hat has anything to do with this. But we are going to work with some Red Hat folks that are going to come on the program and they are going to walk you, the Ask Noah Show audience, through getting your RHCSA. Now, we're not going to release that as a tr normal episode, obviously, because that's not for everybody. But we are going to release it as a separate, uh, I don't know, not training set, but just a session where you can come and join us and hang out and learn how to get one of the world's most respected certifications in IT. So if you want to take your IT career to the next level, this is the way to do it. And the folks at Red Hat are excited to give back to the community. I'm excited to give back to the community. I think this is a great way to get you to where you need to be if you want to move forward in IT. So super excited. That's planned for 2019. So we'll have a couple of tutorials leading up to that. And then uh, hopefully all of this comes together because as you can imagine, there are a bunch of uh, various little things that we have to work out. So for example, you for the RHCSA, you have to know how to authenticate into an LDAP server. But setting up an LDAP server is not in fact required. So how do you test or how do you practice authenticating into an LDAP server if you can't get it, if you don't have an LDAP server to authenticate with? So we have to design some scripts to customize a box to be set up for you to be able to actually perform the tasks. And uh, and so if there's anybody out there that has a lot of proficiency in Red Hat and would like to uh, and would just uh, contact me, email us live at asknoshow.com. And uh, and if you have some time and you'd like to help, we would love your help. Otherwise, uh, uh, the the uh, Steve Ovens and myself, we're going to bang this out and it's going to be a lot of fun. So make sure to keep your eyes on that. Um, that's going to be a fun project. By the way, for what it's worth, all of these tutorials, if you like what we do, if you go to youtube.com, you check out this WireGuard tutorial and it really helps you out. The best thing you can do to thank us is share it. Share it, retweet it, share it on Facebook, share it on Google+, share it all over the internet because getting our name out there is what we're trying to do. So that's how you can really help us. Brandon Johnson joins us next on the Ask Noah show. I'm just going to stop, make a quick stop at the, uh, at the phones here. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. You're on Ask Noah. What's on your mind? Hi. Yeah. I was just calling because, um, 
I have uh, Kubuntu 18.04 on a W520 Link ThinkPad workstation. Okay. Um, and I have a I have a game that I was trying to uh, download on Steam that I purchased that uh, I'm, I'm trying to play, and it's it, it runs Vulkan only. And uh, hmm. I, as far as I know, I have all the right Vulkan packages installed, but um, I'm getting a fail to initialize error on the game when I try to run it. And it, then, so, you know, I looked. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. You looked. Oh, yeah. No, so I was, so I was like looking up, you know, I was looking up what the problems might be. And I, I you know, I, I uh, ran the Vulkan info tool and, and uh, now, you know, that's pipe. That's uh, giving me a failed with VK error initialization failed uh, thing, and I just and I just don't know where to go next, you know, on this because, um, I, I, as far as I know, Vulcan still supported on my on my. Uh, I have a Quadro 1000M legacy chip, but. It's. I have the most recent uh, NVIDIA proprietary di- driver installed. Right? Nine out of ten times, that's what it is. It's a driver issue. Have you have you tried uh, have you tried rolling back maybe one driver issue or so? Um, no, I haven't tried that yet. I, I I I don't really know the process for like going back a driver. Um, I'm I'm pretty new to Linux myself. Um, oh, okay. But yeah. Well, I I are you in the U.S. Yes, I am. All right, I tell you what, I I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a couple options. Here's here's what we'll do. So option one is um, what you can do is you if you if you if you look what uh, I'm sorry you probably told me, but what is the base operating system? Are you running Ubuntu or Fedora? Uh, it, it's it's Kubuntu. Uh, Kubuntu. Kubuntu. I'm sorry, you did tell me that. Yeah. Uh, so in so with Kubuntu, there are PPAs for the various different uh, driver versions, and so what you can do is you can mm-hmm. add a PPA for an older driver version, uh, so you can look back and, and roll back one version. But I tell you what I'll do. What I'll do is I will grab your contact information, and, and as long as it's okay with you, what I'll do is I'll pass on our contact information to uh, Altaspeed Technologies, and we'll get a service technician to get with you and work with you on a one-on-one basis to figure out that what exactly where your issue is because um past telling i can tell you that it's a driver issue past that it would be very difficult for me to tell you in a two-minute radio call exactly how to how to go about troubleshooting that um but i can get you to the people that can help you okay perfect thank you yeah appreciate the call 1-855-450 noah that's 855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com you're on ask noah what's on your mind hey noah i have a very important meeting coming up and I'm trying to execute that meeting through Linux and you've mentioned being a big fan of Zoom over the last uh, few episodes. Yes. Um, so this meeting is being uh, being conducted over Zoom and I'm going to be giving a live demo and I wanted to see if there was some way to do picture in picture. I don't know if I need to set up OBS um, so I can have my demo and, and my webcam in the bottom right hand corner and then present that to Zoom, or if there was some way I could I could make that happen. Yeah, Just Zoom native go, go an extra little mile. Yeah, Zoom natively has a uh, a picture or a um, a screen share function. So yeah, you can absolutely do that natively in Zoom without any extra hardware or software. However, if you have a capture card like either the uh, the the uh, Magwell uh, thirty frames per second uh, native Linux capture card, if you've got something like that. 
Uh, it might not be a, if you have an OBS rig and you can spin that up and feed your laptop into it, then you can have like graceful transitions and you can go back and forth and you could really wow that the, the attendees of that meeting. Okay. I might, uh, I might have to run over to micro center tomorrow then. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I mean, if, if it were me, if the meeting were important enough, I guess that's what I would do simply because it, again, that wow factor and the ability to have control and also stability, right? Zoom, the screen sharing function, you're, you're essentially, uh, you know, trusting that your web browser is going to hold for it. Whereas if, if you, uh, if you use something like OBS, now you've got dedicated hardware running dedicated software that is specifically designed to do video switching, yeah, this, that, and the other. So that would be my, that'd be my first choice. And, uh, if, if that gets you there, great. If that doesn't, then, uh, then you simply, or budget doesn't allow, then you simply fall back to the built-in functions. Again, one 450 no it's 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. You can also join us in our interactive mumble room. Brandon does that. Hey, Brandon, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. I'm going to have to assign, like, uh, names for all you regulars that show up here all the time. So, Brandon, you automated your house. Yes, I did. All right, <laughs> tell, so tell me the story. So I guess let's start with this. Why did you decide to automate your house? I mean, what's wrong with just getting up and turning the light switch on and off? Well, I'm lazy. <laughs> so, oh, we share that in common. Um, but part of it is mostly, uh, you know, I want to be able to just know if my lights are on in my house, whether when, when I'm home or not. That was a big part of it. And also, I just wanted uh, uh, to, for me, it was just a fun science experiment. Yeah, it's always fun to just have toys to play with. Absolutely. All right. So uh, what did we automate? Do we automate just the lights? Do we automate lights and security system? Do we automate everything that has a plug on it? How far did you go? So I started off with just lights. So let's, uh, you know, kind of go from... So one of my requirements is that it, everything had to be independent. So like I still had to be able to go to a light switch and be able to turn it on and off. Mm. Uh, and you know, just, and not just, uh, um, do it from my phone. That's, you know, that I don't want to, that that's a big no for me. <laughs> it, it's a, it has to be, to be able to do it traditional way. So I start off with lights and if uh, I figured if I could get the lights work, I could get buy-in from the wife. Right. So yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's the most important thing because if if it fails, you know, it gets ripped out. I think you have that story with X10. You know, get it got <laughs> you try to do it and then you had to rip it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so, spousal approval. That's that's an it's very much important. Absolutely. So um, so I start off with the lights. Then I moved into um, a few other uh, things around the house. Uh, locks. Um, was uh, was another one of them, um, which I'm actually now reevaluating. But uh, um, and then uh, uh, garage door things, uh, things of that nature. What did you use for the actual light switches? So for those, I'm using a uh, Lutron um, lights uh, light switches. Um, the reason why uh, I picked Lutron one, I can go to Home Depot and buy one. Yep. If I need to, mm -hmm. uh, number two, uh, that the protocol that they've used has been, they've been do, using that protocol for, uh, well over a decade. Um, it's tried and true. Um, I've seen it in commercial applications, not just in home, uh, automation applications. So that, that was one of the reasons why I went with Lutron and, uh, also it, uh, ticks the boxes. It does not require cloud service. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's interesting because I also 
used uh, I went with Lutron um, when I did my uh, when I did my uh, automation system and and largely for the same reasons I had worked with them in a commercial space and they had worked incredibly well and they also they, again they have a proven track record so it's not it's not Lutron doesn't make a device that's going to be here today and it works with whatever the current API is and then all of a sudden something gets updated on some server somewhere and somebody doesn't want to support it and so it goes by the wayside these are the kind of devices that you put in your house for 10 15 20 years and I feel comfortable that Lutron has the reputation to do that and uh, and and they also work with all the big automation people as well right they work with uh, yep. you know they work with Crestron and, and all those places so yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I agree with that decision 100%. And what did you go with for locks? So with locks, I went with Z-Wave uh, Schlage locks. So that kind of goes back to I uh, um, uh, am reevaluating that because of uh, some uh, uh, vulnerabilities that were discovered after I bought <laughs> the locks <laughs> in the Z-Wave protocol mm -hmm. when, uh, when it comes to the secure Z-Wave protocol. So I'm reevaluating that right now uh, uh, for uh, um, and then above 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 all of this though is uh, OpenHab. Um, so I'm using OpenHab to kind of orchestrate all the uh, automation. So like when I leave the house, like I press the button to lock my door, it automatically turns off all the lights, go and you know, does all that. Um, I t what's great about it is like I, I'm kind of using OpenHab as a shim above every, above all of these, so that uh, my, when my uh, if I when I do go to replace the locks, my, it's not going to affect um, the automation that I have underneath. Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And the other thing is it gives you a central point, right? The nice thing about having mm -hmm. that it gives you a central tie point. So when if like so you haven't done alarms yet, right? Nope, I have not done alarms. I've done motion sensors, which are also Z-Wave. Actually, uh, I have a cool way I'm handling Z-Wave that um, we can get to in a minute. <laughs> so where I want to go first is with the, if, if, when you go to add an alarm system, you have a, even if you don't have to worry, is my alarm system compatible with both my lights and my lock and this and that and this, that and the other, it, it, that, that problem gets to be a real issue fast. And so the advantage of having a central home automation controller like OpenHab is that you have one place and as long as your alarm system can talk to OpenHab and as long as every device can talk to OpenHab, then OpenHab can be the intermediary to facilitate logic and stuff and doing this, that, and the other as things happen in the house. I'll give you a perfect example of that. I have a um, access control system that sits on the front of my house. So it, it takes an RFID um, chip and when that RFID chip is authenticated, then it sends a command or a a, a basically a string to my home automation controller that says, "Hey, I uh, somebody somebody presented valid credentials at the front door, and so I would like you to request to unlock the door." And it sends a command to the electromagnet that sits at the top of the door and, and unlocks the door. The advantage of having that central point, because I could do that all just in the key controller, the advantage of having that central controller is that central controller then can reach out to the home security system and say, hey, he doesn't need to enter a pin because he already presented valid credentials at the front door. By the way, turn on the entryway lights. By the way, set the temperature up to 68 because he's home. And uh, and so it, it, it will do all of those things, and that's only possible because none of those systems necessarily could talk to each other. That's only possible because of the central control. So talk to me about the interesting way that you're handling these lights through Z-Wave. Yeah, well, Z-Wave, uh, the way I've been handling Z-Wave um, is, so OpenHab, let me 
let me explain this first. So OpenHab is actually running on a virtual machine in my uh, overt cluster um, in my basement. Um, now, with uh, Z-Wave, you usually need to use some sort of um, like a, like a USB stick uh, or uh, like with a Raspberry Pi, there's actually a, a Z-Wave controller that goes into the GPIO board. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, <clears throat> so uh, what I'm using is I'm using an open source project that, I, that hasn't been maintained in years, um, but it works. And what it does is it's called REM serial, R-E-M-S-E-R-I-L. Now, what REM serial does is it uh, takes a, um, a serial device and presents it over the network. So what, what's cool about that is I can just put uh, my uh, Z-Wave stick on a stateless Raspberry Pi and, and then uh, uh, OpenHab is just on my, uh, high, uh, in my virtualization cluster. So if that goes down, my entire automation is, is, doesn't go down. Just my Z, like so, if like that Raspberry Pi blows up, I, I don't have to worry about my home automation uh, stop working. Yeah, that, that that's not going to stop working. Though, um, but what's because uh, uh, OpenHab's not going to go down because it's in it's virtualized. It, it'll just uh, go if uh, one of the hosts dies, it's automatically going to get respun up on one of those other hosts. So. Uh, um, so that, that there's a real advantage of using something like that in this, but that, you know, this is some, something I, I can't remember where I read about REM serial, but I got that set up. It's pretty cool. I think, I think it's a, uh, one of the best ways of handling uh, serial uh, um, devices today. <laughs> the uh, REM serial, I was just looking at that. It's a really interesting project. I've actually used a device called the device master made by a company called Comtrol. And, um, the advantage of uh, REM serial is obviously there's no cost. You can just download the software and run it on an existing device. If you didn't want to uh, go through the trouble of setting out that piece of software, having a dedicated device and, and, and worrying about the code base and all of that, the, I highly recommend the Device Master. Like you said, it, same thing. It basically takes a serial port and encapsulates that traffic and spits it over IP so that it can be then retrieved uh, at the other end, they have drivers for both Linux windows. Um, and so any machine that I run virtually that has to have serial control, I use one of these device masters and they make them in a one port, I think a three port, a five port and a six port. Um, so absolutely fantastic device. And of course, we'll have links to both our REM serial and the control in the show notes. The other thing that uh, I've used control for, and maybe this is kind of what I was thinking, Brandon, that maybe you had used REM serial for is uh, console ports uh, back in the days where you had switches and routers and stuff that you had to console into. No, I haven't used that for that. Uh, I, I I stumbled across this. I actually think it was a blog po a blog post that um, someone that was using Home Assistant. So it was a similar so a similar uh, use case uh, for 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 me. Except they were, instead of open app, they're using Home Assistant. I actually, I'll I'll uh, send you the uh, link to that in the uh, Telegram. Yeah, that, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, well, so far, I you have the 100% approval of the Ask Noah show for your uh, for your choices, your design choices. I, I think you're doing a fantastic job. So you're, uh, you're, are you totally separated from the cloud? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, mostly. So like OpenHab, I, you know, what you, you, I can do is I can have it 
So I have an iPhone, so I can actually use OpenHAB to use, a, you know, present it as a HomeKit device. So everything can be presented to HomeKit. Another thing that's really cool. So is if I wanted to bring in an Amazon Alexa into the house, I could do that as well. And then I, if I don't want them in there anymore, listening to all the things I do, I can uh, throw them out. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and, and it doesn't affect my setup at all. That's so very like cool. It's, so that, that's, uh, so like if Mycroft happens to, uh, you know, take off and, uh, <laughs> and the devices become affordable, you know, I go buy a Mycroft and, and boom, it's, uh, uh, I have vo vo uh, voice recognition for my, for my, uh, um, for my home. home automation yeah no that's yeah. Uh, that's really great and and part of that is because you're using the central controller and because you're using open standards open protocols um yeah and so uh, software is it uh, is it all open source mostly open source so uh, obviously except for uh for all the software is open source but the protocols obviously since i'm using lutron and z-wave uh, in this uh uh you know but are not but um not a, it's not a perfect world. <laughs> is uh, is Z-Way not, not an open protocol? Uh, it's a, it's a, um, I think it's a, there's like a standards body, but it's not a technically an open protocol. Zigbee mm. is an open protocol, but uh, Z-Wave, I don't think it is. I might be wrong on that. Interesting. So. Okay. I just, I was doing some looking. It looks like open Z-Wave is an open source cross-platform version of the Z-Wave protocol that that uh, that has been released into the public. Well, regardless, open standard, closed standard, the point is it is a standard, and that standard is compatible with open source software, which yeah. is, I guess, at the end of the day, what we really care about. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody out there that will get bogged down by the devil in the details of the fact that the protocol itself is an open source, but, you know... What what are we really worried about here? Uh, it's all as long as if it's not going out over the cloud, I'm not that concerned. Um, so that's I think that's absolutely fantastic. And then operating system, uh, I assume uh, some sort of Red Hat slash Fedora flavor. Uh, so everything is either CentOS or Fedora. Um, you, the Raspberry Pi is running Fedora. Uh, OpenHab is running. Um, uh, CentOS. Are you a fan of uh, using Fedora for servers? I've used it uh, for servers. I do use it occasionally. Um, uh, I do have this uh, uh, Skull Canyon Nook that I kind of use as like a, just like a test bed that's running Fedora. Yeah. Um, but uh, Fedora, you know, it's running Fedora server and a bunch of uh, guests of various flavors, whether that's CentOS for Debian, um, but that that that's all it's used for. But yeah, it, it just depends on my use case. Like, do I need, like, how fast do I need it to move? That's yeah, that's that's fair. I uh, I'm I'm always worried anytime I I'm I'm a huge Fedora fan. There's not a uh, not a single version of Fedora that's ever come out that I haven't used on at least one of my machines. But I do get a little concerned when uh, I do get a little concerned as it relates to. Uh, Fedora when it comes to, to things like updates, because I personal experience, I've not found Fedora to be the easiest thing in the world to continually update. Although, albeit the past, like, I don't know, seven, eight versions, I've not really had any issues. But prior to that, it seemed like it was a little hit or miss. And then the my other issue is that it's so stinking fast, like every, I mean, a six month cycle, that is fast, especially if you've got something like a home automation controller. Uh, as the chat room points out, it says, well, if the central controller goes down, 
you might lose some stuff. Now, in your case and in my case, you know, the lights are still going to function because they're all actually locally switched. They're just capable of speaking, you know, in, 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 in the case of Lutron through RF and into IP back to whatever the device is. But at, at the same time, like if that controller goes down, you do lose a critical function in your home. Yeah. Well, my control. So the controller is virtualized. So, and I have three hypervisors and my guests live migrate between those and it all is shared storage. So if, uh, uh, has to have shared storage to live migrate, but <laughs> the, uh, um, but for the, uh, if, uh, if one of those hosts goes down and open have happens to be running on that, uh, over is the way it's designed is you, it'll automatically, uh, turn, uh, turn those VMs back on that I've decided needed to be highly available. In this case, open is one of them and it will automatically turn back on one of those other hosts. So I'm not that concerned did about, you, uh, about that. Did you just use the term highly available in your house? Yes, I did. Okay. You, you, you've earned the next level. You just leveled up in geek points, man. So the other thing I wanted to pick your brain about, unless you got anything else that we got to talk about, about the home automation thing, I think that's absolutely fantastic what you're doing. I really like it. I'm going to model some of that. Yeah. yeah well, the, I, I just, uh, you know, my, my whole goal with this is there, could, there should be no single point of failure because uh, for me to maintain spouse or Spousal, spousal approval. I have to have five nine uptime, right? So, <laughs> I'll, t I'll tell you. I'll tell you a little story about. I'll tell you a little story about spousal approval, Brandon. When we first, I first got married. I was probably married maybe sixty days. You know, that's the that's the window where like picking out you know curtains will cause a divorce. I mean, it's just crazy, right? And uh, I said, honey, we are going to install a home automation system that has access control in the doors. And so you'll, I'll issue you a RFID credential, and then you'll present that. And if a valid credential is presented at the RFID reader, the door will unlock. And I said, the great thing is you will never have to remember to lock the door because the door will automatically lock behind you within five seconds to ensure security and integrity uh, you know, of the premises. She's wholly unimpressed by all of this, but she reluctantly agrees. And so I put out this entire system in. And the first couple of times, you know, she would leave for the grocery store and it was kind of nice. She'd just pull the door shut, the door would lock or whatever. Well, about a week after that, she goes outside to get the paper in her bathrobe in North Dakota in February at, you know, I don't know, 30 below zero. We can all see where this story is going and uh, goes to come back in and realizes that the door has locked behind her, ensuring the security of the premises within five seconds. She's beating on the door, and so I come and answer the door. And that was the day, Brandon, that I learned when your wife asks you why the door locks after five seconds and she couldn't get back into the house, the appropriate and correct answer is not, well, honey, why did you not bring your RFID credentials to present for valid entry? She was not impressed with that answer, and thus the uh, security time was changed to 30 seconds and a pin pad was added outside to bypass the RFID entry when somebody forgets their key. <laughs> so I learned that lesson the hard way. Uh, yeah. To maintain spousal approval, we had to make some compromises on, on security. Yeah. yeah, that's the way it works. <laughs> One other thing I wanted to talk to you about while I, while I have you is um, there have been some crazy updates to Cockpit and Cockpit has made some amazing advances. One of those things that the first time you see cockpit, if you're not familiar with what cockpit is, it is essentially you're taking server administration and turning it into a web dashboard. I mean, that's, that's really what it is. And it is, they have done a absolute bang up remarkable job. Um, you and I were chatting about cockpit actually replacing vert manager, which is a local GTK application that is used to manage virtual servers that are run on libvirt D. Tell me about that. 
Yeah, so I was just playing with this. Uh, and if anyone, if you're not running Fedora full time, uh, you know, you're not going to see this because uh, ever, ever. So cockpit has, uh, looks like it has a two week re release cycle and uh, Fedora gets uh, uh, those releases every, you know, every, uh, every single time there's a new release. And I just happened to notice this and um, it's almost there. It's not quite there yet. But uh, so like a few, few releases ago, um, you could spin up virtual machines. That's it. Be able to access them via via um, an HTML VNC console, things like that. No, you know, nothing too fancy stuff that you just would expect. Um, at least that I would expect. Uh, in this latest release, um, they uh, now allow you to uh, add uh, network devices to the virtual machines, which it, which was new. Uh, a few releases ago, they allowed you to add disks. But what what came in this release was the uh, ability to add storage. Now, I, I that one just uh, I'm like oh this would be so not, like I, I all all that I need to do is be able to not just add a network device to the virtual machine, but I need to be able to add networks, but like virtual networks, uh, in inside the UI. And as soon as that's done, I'm like, uh, Vert Manager's done. Like I don't need it anymore. And that was right. so nice. Uh, so um, so it's getting there. It's not quite there. Um, but yeah, I would, I just happened to play with it. And I'm like, uh, that's when I pinged you. I'm like, you can almost replace, <laughs> um, uh, vert manager with cockpit. And that made, that made my day. You know, and, <laughs> and, and this is not to rag on vert manager because, you know, you and I are both big fans of Liberty, but let's face it. The op, I mean, it's a, it is a dated application. I mean, it, the interface feels clunky and old. It very much accomplishes, it's capable of very powerful things, but really what it was designed for, uh, was, they every everybody the real ninjas use verse commands when you want to go power a vm up or power one down or duplicate one or live migrate all of the ninjas use verse commands and so they drop to a command line they issue a verse command they tell it what you want it to do what where where vert manager really came into its own was system administrators that said listen i'm used to having buttons to click on to start and stop the server i'm used to having buttons to click on to do this that or the other uh and so thus vert manager was born and to give you of course vnc screen scraping of the uh, console access to your to your virtual machine so it's it's a it's it's a useful tool it was great in its time but it it is great to see that we have an option for something that can be a little bit more modern, a little bit more lean, a little bit more aggressive, and still not have all of the overhead of like a, a Proxmox server or, um, you know, an OpenStack or any of those things. It's literally just the hypervisor and a way to control it. And of course, Cockpit then goes above and beyond that because you have full administrative control over the server for doing administration tasks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. So like, that's a, uh... And, and what's gr great about it too is like anything that you uh, you do in cockpit does not affect anything you've done on the command line. So it, that that's uh, so if you add a storage domain, that, that's uh, those aren't familiar with libvirt. That you know the storage domain is where your VMs are stored. Um, the uh, uh, if you add a storage domain in cockpit, that is reflected on your libvirt T server. That's absolutely awesome. Well, Brandon, I can't thank you enough for always taking the time to come here, always explaining this stuff. I would love to check in with you in a couple months and see how your home automation project goes. I'd also, I'll also ping you for help when I start uh, incorporating some of the stuff we talked about here today because I think it's exciting, cool, and, and it's great that home automation has gotten to the point where we can do it on Linux and with open source and mostly open protocols. Yep. I'll talk to you soon, Noah.
I appreciate it. Thanks for thanks for thanks for joining us. Again, uh, open phones this hour one eight fifty five four fifty no. That's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. If you've ever wanted remote access to your home server or your office server, you have probably considered a VPN. The problem is oftentimes VPNs are difficult to set up. We actually did a large project for a uh, for a large client. They've got three remote offices, and it took us. Uh, we, we spent a week out there setting up the all of the VPN stuff. Um, now that was a particularly com- complicated and complex uh, series of setups because essentially no one office could ever go down, which meant that we had redundant internet connections, and we had uh, and we had redundant servers, and there was a bunch. It wasn't just the VPN that took a week. But it wasn't an insignificant portion of the time either, let me tell you that. Uh, so VPNs are one of those things that I typically try to stay away from unless I absolutely have to have to get in there and, and set one up. Oftentimes what we'll do is we'll set up a simple uh, VPN like a PPOE, which that's a pretty straightforward thing to set up, but it's not very secure. And so really what you want to be doing is you want to be setting up things like IPsec, OSPF if you want to get some routing in there. And that has always been a difficult, challenging task. To set it up properly, you're generating certificates and you're moving things around, and it's probably a, a, you know a couple hours to set it up. Well, there is a project called WireGuard, and WireGuard seeks to ch- blow all of that out of the water. To give you an idea, uh, OpenVPN, 600,000 lines of code. IPsec, 400,000 lines of code. Do you want to take a guess at how many lines of code WireGuard has? 4,000. No, 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 not 400,000, not 40,000, 4,000 lines of code. From a security standpoint, it is so much easier, it's so much more efficient to audit 4,000 lines of code as opposed to 600,000 lines of code. Then you get Lennis Torvalds, and he steps up and he says, hey, I just want to say again that WireGuard is incredible, and I hope it gets merged soon. It might not be perfect, but I've skimmed it, and compared to the other horrors that are OpenVPN IPsec, it is a work of art. And that's really what started to get me thinking. Um, And as I've watched WireGuard evolve, and as I've watched the people speak about it and Jason Donafield speak about it, I've become more excited about it. So I asked you last week, what would you like to see in a tutorial? Would you like to see more things of Rivendell? Would you like to see... um, WireGuard, would you like to see, uh, I think Tink was brought up, or um, there was another VPN too that we had looked at, Zero Tier I think was brought up. What would you like to see? And overwhelmingly, you, the Asno audience, voted for WireGuard. So we delivered on a promise, we went through, we dug in, we did the necessary research, learned everything there was to know about WireGuard, and we produced a tutorial. It walks you step by step through exactly what you need to get uh, WireGuard up and running. And let me tell you, that is not much. It is essentially as simple as setting up SSH. You generate a certificate pair on the server, a client and a public and private key. You generate a certificate pair on your client, a public and private key. And uh, you exchange those keys, put in a host where you want the client to connect. And Bob's your uncle, it's up and working. I set one up at my office. I set one up at my house. I have one set up at a client. I am currently playing with uh, setting up two WireGuard instances on uh, on two dedicated machines that are at uh, both ends of a client connection and having the WireGuard facilitate the entire two networks being bridged together. It is a phenomenal 
phenomenal, phenomenal piece of software that really, really, that really simplifies a need that has been around for so long because so many of us want to have secure access to our devices and we're not able to get there. And now we are. Now, I am not a cryptologist and I don't play one on TV, but the basic idea of encryption is is um, based on prime numbers. So we're all familiar with what a prime number is. It's a number that can only be divided by one in itself. So for an example, seven or 13. Now, if you take two of those prime numbers and you multiply them together, like if I multiplied seven times 13, I would get 91. 91 is a special kind of prime number. It's known as a semi-prime. And the idea behind a semi-prime is this. It's very easy to calculate a semi-prime. Take two prime numbers, multiply them together. However, if I give you the number 91, there is no there is no way to undo the math. There's no way to figure out which two prime numbers I used to arrive at 91. The only way to do that is trial and error. And so I'm doing it with, you know, a single digit number and a, and a, and a double digit number. But now imagine if I had numbers that were, you know, 5000 digits characters long or 250 uh, you know, characters long and you multiply those by each other. You can imagine how many hundreds of thousands of millions of years it would take even hundreds of thousands of computers to guess what that number is, if they could ever do it with our computing power and, uh, you know, electricity. So this, uh, this concept of semi-primes is a very practical way to implement uh, encryption. So that's the fundamental idea behind how encryption works. That's the fundamental idea of what a private and public key are. The private key would be something like seven and 13, the two prime numbers that we used. And the public key, the thing that we give out to everybody else is 91. So if somebody says, are you 91? And I say, yeah, I use these two numbers to arrive at 91. I can prove that I am in fact 91 because I have the two secret numbers that I use to create the, the public number that we give out. But uh, WireGoad go goes above and beyond that. The encryption that they use is ChaCha20 for symmetric encryption, authenticated with Poly1305 and using AEAD construction. Curve25519 uh, for ECDH. Blake2S for hashing and keyed hashing. And uh, SIPHash24 for hashable keys. Now, does Noah understand in detail what all of those things are and exactly how they work? Absolutely not. But if you are a cryptologist or if you care about the encryption, that is the encryption that they are using. And I have talked to a couple people far smarter than me that uh, assure me that WireGuard is doing it right. And they have nailed down a reliable, fast, easy but very secure way to establish a remote VPN connection back into your system. So if you want to set that up, we'll have a link for you in the show notes. We'll show you exactly how to do it. If you don't have two machines you can use, you can rent a couple of virtual machines from uh, a number of different VPS providers and, uh, and try it out that way. Maybe get yourself some presence in the cloud and then you can use it for browsing the internet from one of DigitalOcean server and their amazing bandwidth. I don't know what you want to do, but uh, you absolutely have to try WireGuard. It's an absolutely fantastic product, and I think it's going to become the next standard of VPNs uh, in, in our industry. So definitely, if you work in the industry, it's something to watch. Again, open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. You're on Ask Noah. What's on your mind? Hi, Noah. How are you doing today? Hey, pretty good. How are you? Excellent. Um, so I have a question. Uh, not quite... Uh, related to uh, WireGuard, um, though I appreciate the coverage. Um, kind of what I'm wondering is your, you know, somewhat related to Linux in that um, how do you balance uh, being pragmatic with, you know, certain like online services versus rolling your own 
uh, you balance the pragmatism versus the convenience. So say something like uh, hosting your own, uh, you know, photo server or your ne- next cloud or whatever, and tagging your own photos versus uploading them all to Google because it'll be able to, you know, for yeah. better or worse, it'll be able to tell you, you know, what's going on uh, with your, you know, what's in the pictures. That is a great question. That might be one of the best questions I've ever gotten on this show. Um, here's my answer to that. My answer to that is what can I live without? So, for example, uh, I back my photos that I take on my Android phone up to Google. And the reason I do that is twofold. One is if you opt into backing your photos up from your phone, it automatically syncs them up to your Google Drive and then deletes them off of your phone. So in the Google Photo apps on my phone, I can swipe through and pick any picture I want to look at and it will open it up. But it's quote unquote streaming that photo from the cloud. It's not actually stored on my phone. So I don't have to buy as big of a phone um, to keep track of all my photos. It also means I don't have to every couple weeks dump all of the photos off my phone and save them to my NAS, which is what I was previously doing. Now, how how do I arrive at the conclusion of do I want to store all these photos on my NAS or do I want to store them on on the Google Cloud? The answer to the, the question I ask myself is, can I live without it? If all of a sudden tomorrow, Google Drive crashes and I lose every photo I have ever taken on Google Drive, do I care? Can I live without them? If the answer to that question is yes, then I'll use the cloud service. If the answer to that question is no, there are valuable photos on there that I really want, then I won't use that service. And so how that plays out, practically speaking, if I take a picture of my ridiculously adorable children that I want to keep, that photo gets downloaded off of my phone just as I ordinarily would onto my laptop and stored in my normal process for storing photos. But when I'm walking in, we are building a uh, uh, another studio to accommodate making more content. And uh, I was visiting with the painters, and we wanted to replicate uh, one of our other studios. And so they said, what paint do you want to use? And I couldn't remember the name of the paint color. So I took a picture of the wall and brought it into the paint store and said, I need, you know, however many gallons of this paint. That is not a photo that I really care where it winds up, but and I don't really care if it gets deleted. But it's nice to have access to that. So a year from now or two years from now, if I ever need to find that paint again, I can just Go back to my Google Photos, scroll through until I find roughly the date that we built this new studio, click on the picture, and it pops up and shows me, you know, the, the color of that paint. So in, in those kind of instances, I don't mind using cloud services. I'll give you another example. Uh, as it, I have a Netflix subscription. Now, I canceled Netflix a while back because they didn't support Linux, and I told them that I would re-sign up when they supported Linux. True to my word, as soon as they started supporting Linux... Uh, I signed back up for Netflix. Now, how did I make the decision? Do I want to stream content off the cloud or do I, or do, do I want to own that local media? If it's content that I don't care about, I'm watching a TV show and all I want to do, my only goal is to get through the TV show. I don't, maybe I don't like it or maybe I just wanted something on in the background. Uh, I have no problem streaming that. If it's a program I like, if it's a movie I like, if it's a TV show I really enjoy, I'll go out and purchase that TV show up to and including even like documentaries and stuff that I've seen on Netflix. I go, hey, that's really, really cool. And I use it almost as like a preview service. Now, if Netflix tomorrow goes away, I can I can with 100% certainty tell you that anything I liked on Netflix, I own. And anything that I, anything that I don't own, I, d- I don't really care if I ever see it again or not. Um, and so that's kind of how I answer that question. It gets a little more dicey when you come into software choices. Like, for example... Many people have heard me numerous times say, I don't own a Windows machine. All of my machines are running some form of Linux. That's not to say I don't use Windows. It just means that I don't own any machines that run 
Windows on them. I use Windows inside of VM for all sorts of things when I need a given tool. This uh, this week, again, going back to the studio build we're doing, there's these little lights that sit on top of the mic poles that tell us when the phone call's coming in or when the microphone's on or if somebody's at the door or whatever. And they have to be programmed with a piece of Windows software that plugs into this light. Now, once you program it, we never touch it again. It just I tell it if I want it to flash or if I want it to be steady or whatever. So I have no problem using Windows to program that light because, again, if the software ever goes away, if the program ever goes away, I just won't use that light. I don't, it doesn't matter. I don't care. First of all, that particular light is already programmed. And if I really absolutely needed to change the programming, I can always send it into the company and they'll program it for me. In fact, if we had known what we wanted, we'd probably done that anyway. Uh, so it's one of those things that I, I don't have to have that piece of software. It's not required for me to do anything. So I don't mind using it then. Um, where I draw a hard line in the sand, I won't install Windows on Metal because I simply don't trust it. I don't trust the security. I don't trust the reliability mm-hmm. of it. And then the other part of that is I won't I won't use any Windows program that I become dependent on. If there's some program I need, I'm going to find a way to do that thing in Linux. And part of that is just to keep me sharp on the show because I'm able to say answer those questions for how anybody else wants to do it. I can say with, with again, no equivocations, listen, you can absolutely do your entire job, whatever it is that you do, you can find a way to do it on Linux because I found a way to do it on Linux. And I'll help you find a way to do it on mm-hmm. Linux if you can. Does that is that's a really long-winded answer, but does that kind of answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate the call. I, I it's it's a it's a difficult line to trend. It really is. And it's one of those things where I, I still struggle sometimes where I'll sit there and I'll go, man, do I is this is this one of those things that I'm 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 becoming reliant on and, and do I need to go find uh, a Linux alternative or is it something I just don't care enough about and so I'll just run it on Windows. But you know kind of a good checksum for me is I don't back anything up on Windows, uh, up to and including the VM. So they get destroyed every time I get a new laptop. The VM goes away. and if there is, So if there is a piece of software I was relying on, I'm hosed because I don't know where to download it again or I'd have to go find it and set the whole thing back up. Uh, nothing in, in the Windows world is persistent. And if I have clients that have to use Windows, which is not my choice, but if they tell me, hey, we've got this piece of software, it's going to run on Windows. If you want a paycheck, you'll make sure it works. You can put Linux where you want to put Linux, but you have to keep this particular thing running. If it's that, then we just virtualize it. And uh, and then what we do is your Windows, the entire operating system and your stupid application become just basically one little tiny application component to my Linux system. And that's kind of the way I look at that. Really no different than using Weiner. Uh, you know, to get to, to get Windows applications to run, which I mean, we do. We as Linux users use things like TeamViewer all the time, so I don't have a problem with that at all. Real quickly, we don't really have time to dig into it, but just kind of a, as a kicker story, Microsoft is dumping uh, their uh, their Edge HTML, which is the essentially the render engine for Microsoft Edge, which is the replacement for Internet Explorer, and they're replacing it with Blink, which is the render engine for Chrome. I find that to be hilarious. Because we, as Linux users, have said basically since day one, Internet Explorer is a tra- is a piling is a flaming piece of trash, and nobody should ever use it. And when they announced that Edge had come out, we we're like, well, that's not really any better, Microsoft. Microsoft is learning. I mean, I would have preferred that they just said, yeah, we're just going to discontinue our web browser, and you can use Chrome like everybody wants to do. But hey, you know what? This is not a bad second. Make sure to check out the download, podcast.asknoahshow.com. You're only getting part of the show if you're not visiting the show notes. That has all the articles and references you need to become a part of the program. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener, Rakai, our, well, Rakai doesn't edit a video anymore. What am I talking about? We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. See you then. <laughs>